Welcome back to another episode of the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm really excited this week for a slight change in pace as instead of interviewing someone about their research or experience, this is more of a conversation and an update on a topic that I think is relevant for a lot of parents. And that is, why are we not seeing a relationship between sleep training and attachment status? If so many people are saying that sleep training is basically an abandonment of that constant responsive caregiving that is the hallmark of building up a secure attachment, why do we not see this relationship in the research as it stands? And this really stemmed from episode six, where I spoke to Dr. Jerry Giesbrecht, who did one of these studies looking at this delayed responsiveness to distress and was yet another study to find no relationship at 12 months of age. So I think it's a topic that's really important. I think it's one that people have a lot of questions on. I don't know that the answers uh, that my, my speaker and I talk about will actually have relevance for you or answer your questions, but I really hope they help shed some light on this issue. So without further ado, I welcome you to this week's episode of the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast, looking at why we do not see a relationship between sleep training and insecure attachment. I am so excited to have with me this week, Dr. Levita D'Souza. Levita is a registered counseling psychologist and lecturer at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Her area of focus is in research and practice is on how childhood experiences impact our adult lives, specifically the role of parent-child interactions in the development of attachment and how this subsequently affects behaviors and mental health. Thank you for being with me today, Levita. It is a pleasure to be here today. I am so excited to be here. Well, for anyone that doesn't know, today, Lavita and I are going to discuss a question that has come up a lot um, for us, but also actually to me, since I aired episode six with Dr. Jerry Giesbrecht, I have had actually a lot of comments from listeners questioning how come we don't see this effect on attachment is, was he really saying that there's no link between sleep training and attachment. When I say effect on attachment, pardon me, I assume everyone's listened to it. But um, is there that? And this is something that Levita and I are going to discuss today uh, in more depth about why we might not be seeing this. But before we get there, Levita, I would love to hear from you. How did you get into attachment research in general, both in your practice and in research? And then how did this segue into sleep training? Right. Okay. So when I first started training as a psychologist, it was overseas. And um, part of my internship, if you like, was in a psych ward. And attached to the psych ward was an orphanage. And so I was very, very um, exposed in some ways to what the lack of attachment can do. Um, we would see mental health recovery where parents were really supportive and patients were less likely to come back. And then parents were not very supportive or we could see the interaction not being very um, healthy for the lack of a better word. And we would see recurrent mental health episodes. I would wander off to the orphanage sometimes and I would see how um, hard the lack of attachment was for the child and how the caregivers struggled 
to support these children. And so I didn't have a term for it back then. I just knew there was something in the interaction. And then when I came here to Australia, of course, attachment theory was being discussed and was talked about. And, you know, we got subsequent training. Um, but none of that really became um, apparent till I became a mom myself. Because suddenly now I was confronted with this little baby and I'm now trying to negotiate the kind of mom I want to be. And I'm being told that the kind of mom I should be is not the kind of mom I really want to be, if that makes sense. So my intuition and my cultural identity and who I am as a professional and a person suddenly was at odds with how I was told I was to parent especially when it came to sleep and how I felt undermined and how I felt like my instinct wasn't being validated. And so I did what every other mom does. Um, and that is look for more information or cry actually at the start and then look for more information. And in that I was lucky to be a psychologist. So I could look for evidence-based information. Um, and in that process, I think I met some wonderful women um, who had children by, you know, who were now older and were affirming that I could parent in the way that felt right to my instinct. And that's how I met you, Tracy. <laughs> so <laughs> it is, and I'm grateful for it. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's how I am. And now my baby is six and there's another baby that's two and I feel so much more confident the second time around, but it's been a long journey. It is. And you know, it's, I love that you mentioned that becoming a mother, because I think becoming a parent, but mother, father, whatever it is, it just changes your perspective on everything. So I, I get it when people look at research and it's done by people who maybe don't have kids and they're really making everything very academic and even attachment theory, which we read about so much is I remember having this sense of it. And I, again, doing my, my PhD work, it was something that we researched in depth and looked into. And especially when I started in clinical, you know, you're looking at attachment disorders and all the negative effects that can come when it's not there, but it wasn't until you're presented with this tiny creature and realizing oh my goodness, there's this innate attachment there. And, but there has to be so much more. And it, it reminds me of, I had a conversation with Greer Kirschenbaum last week and we talked about the brain and how the brain changes in pregnancy to prepare you for these behaviors and to prime you for this attachment really is what it seems to be doing. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, absolutely. Like I think the types of, when the baby cries, when the baby smiles, when the baby does any of the little cute things that the baby does, what we call cute are actually attachment behaviors. And what they're doing is to elicit caregivers and usually the primary caregiver, which is mom, but it can be anyone. It can be a dad, it can be a grandma, it can be anyone that's emotionally significant to the child to come close and maintain contact and make the child feel safe. Um, and these wonderful things happen in our brain that helps us feel safe, knowing that your child is safe. And so it is very brain driven, driven and parenting should be brain driven, I think, in some ways. Yeah, it's and, you know, for us, I want to as we move from this discussion into our discussion of sleep training more generally, 
I want to share, this is something Levita and I have started working together. So this is, what you're going to hear is a conversation that has stemmed from our many discussions. So it is a fluid conversation that we're having here, but because we have been trying to work together to talk about some of the stuff with sleep training, um, the type of culture we have with it, moving beyond it, how to come up with alternatives. There's a lot of different questions that we're going to be exploring, and I will be having her on multiple times to talk about some of these issues as they come up. But um, it is something that I think this first question is essential to answer. And I say that because you know, I work with families, as many of you know, and I get a lot of questions about what do we really know? Because on one hand, we get a lot of people telling us sleep training is the only thing you can do, that you should do it. And the narrative around that is telling us that it's good for baby, it's good for mom, it's good for everything. And as any of you who know me know that I, I don't buy that in any way, shape or form. And we can talk about all of that today too. But on the other hand, we get a lot of people talking about it is incredibly dangerous, negative, and will definitely lead to attachment problems, all this stuff. And I've always been clear when I speak about the research, we don't have that strong research one way or another on any of it. We really don't. But what does seem to crop up, there are a handful of studies which show there are they look at attachment outcomes and it shows that there are no relationships between the act of sleep training and the use of crying it out. These are specifically extinction methods. There are not many studies. There are only a few. And the goal today is to highlight, not to say, oh, yes, this is true. This is what it is. The data is there. That is what the data that we have tells us. The validity of that, though, is up for grabs. And that's what Levita and I would like to highlight. So we're going to start. There are really about four areas that we're going to discuss today. We may get off track. We may add five, six, and seven as we discuss. I can't guarantee it. But there are definitely four that we have already highlighted ourselves in this. And um, that's right, Levita, right? I'm not forgetting anything. Now, just for now, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to talk about the four. I'm going to start with the first one, which is really something I'm going to discuss. And, and Levita, please jump in as soon as you come in, which is basically a statistical or methodological problems with these studies. So without going into all of the details, there are, I, I can think of a few studies in particular uh, one of which is a very, one problem of which is a very low sample size. So sometimes you will read a paper in which they have compared attachment outcomes from, say, three groups, one which includes a controlled crying group, one might can include a faded bedtime group, and one might include a, um, a control group. And when you have numbers in these groups that are incredibly low, so something like maybe 10 people per group, 14, yeah, 14 per group, although it goes down in some of the assessments to like eight per group, seven or eight, you do not have the statistical power to detect a difference. Now, for anyone who doesn't understand what that means, and I don't blame you, this is stats and, you know, most people hate stats. I don't blame you for that either, even though I happen to love it. Statistical power means that when we decide we're going to make 
an assessment of whether or not there's an effect. We have what we decide is an effect size, which means the difference has to be strong enough that we consider it valid. And we take a look, there's usually small, medium, and large. And say we want to find a small effect. We, there's a calculation you do that tells you you need X number of people to find this small effect. And if you want to find a large effect, and large effects are things like language acquisition that, you know, eventually everyone does. We see really big effects. So in those studies, you actually might look at language studies and see groups of only 18 kids because that's actually big enough that, or rather it's small enough, but big enough to determine a large effect. And in the case of say a study where they had these small groups of three, that was not even enough statistical power to determine a large effect. So when we look at that number, we say they declared they did not find a significant difference between the groups on the status of attachment. Now, you can say that, but that's like me saying, I looked at three people and I didn't see a relationship between SES and long-term health outcomes. We know there's a large effect between those things. And yet looking at three people, I'm not going to find it. Um, and in fact, in that particular study that I'm thinking of right now, there was a difference in terms of the numbers and like the, the raw numbers of attachment and that we did see lower numbers of attachment in the controlled crying group relative to the control group. And the difference was of the magnitude of around 8%. Um, now, we may say that's not statistically significant. Maybe in a larger sample, it wouldn't be. It would wash out because we don't have enough people to determine it. But if it were to remain and you put that on a larger scale, that 8% becomes quite significant and it would be significant. And that's hence the degree of finding that difference. Am I missing anything on that one, Levita, before we go? Not at all. Doing brilliantly. Keep going. So <laughs> then there's the second kind of, so that's probably one of the biggest that crops up. So the second one would be where we have, say, a study that does a longer term outcome looking at differences, and they might do a randomized controlled trial where they first randomize people to one of each group. One would be an intervention group. One would be the control group. So the intervention group, they are proposed to do controlled crying as part of a intervention to improve infant sleep. And in the control group, they just get other information and they get to decide what they want to do with respect to sleep. Now, when we do analyses after on these groups, there's different ways to do it. And in the particular study I'm thinking of, these analyses maybe six years later, looking at some of the outcomes and in terms of relationships with parents, et cetera. The ways we can do it is the first one's called an intent to treat analysis. And in this one, what we do is we compare the two groups as they were randomized, regardless of whether they did the intervention, if they were in the intervention group, or regardless if, say, someone in the control group did the intervention without knowing. So in this case, it would be not all people in the intervention group may do controlled crying, even though they've been told they should do it. I can say if I were randomized to that group, that would be me. Um, and then there's people who in the other group who would be in the control group. And because they're not being told not to, they may naturally go to it. And when we look at rates of 
controlled crying or any type of extinction sleep training. It happens to be that approximately 50% of people tend to try it across, you know, especially in Australia, Canada, these are where some of these surveys come. That seems to be part of the common number that goes. So say you have this study where you use an intent to treat analysis instead of an analysis based on who did what, and you have half the people in your intervention group have decided not to do it, or I guess it's around 40% have decided not to do it. And approximately half the people in your control group, we might presume, have done it. When you now make a statistical comparison on something like attachment, what are you comparing? You're comparing basically two equivalent groups. So all we can say is that being in an intervention, just being assigned to one, which is what the intent to treat analyzes, does not affect attachment. It is not saying that the intervention itself did not affect attachment. Now, the third issue actually isn't necessarily to do with the attachment or the way in which the statistics are done, but the actual methodology. And here we're looking at the issue of how we assess variables, and in particular, how we assess crying it out. Um, as people may have heard when they listened to the interview with Dr. Giesbrecht, um, that was episode six, when we talked about his research on this, he was very clear that he felt there are a lot of maternal definitions that vary when it comes to what it means to cry it out. How long are you doing it? Um, in his own research, even though it was linked to attachment, and the reason he was very clear about using the term delayed responsiveness to infant crying was because it didn't differentiate day and night. So although people may use it to talk about sleep training, we actually don't have the concrete evidence that that particular study was linked to actual sleep training at night, because it very well could be someone with two kids and you take an extra five, 10 minutes to respond to your baby because your other child has hurt themselves or needs assistance. It could be any number of things. And we know that, you know, it may be an, a, a child who is upset during the day. How does that vary versus being alone at night? You may be in the room during the day without responding because they can see you, you have to get something done, you're in the shower, Whatever it is, there are a huge array of things. And so how we define these variables matters and how people interpret these variables matters because we've all, I think, heard people say, oh, I did sleep training and it was great. And then you start talking about sleep training methods. Oh, no, no, we didn't do anything like that. That was not what we did. And you have to explain, well, that's that's what we're talking about. So th that doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. So these are some of the things, and there's likely more, there's going to be more as we look at more research that looks at this attachment outcome. But those are some of the ones, there's the statistical in terms of power to detect, there is more broadly put how we identify groups and make these comparisons. And then there's how we measure these variables. And pretty much every study that we've looked at that has attachment included suffers from a flaw. And it may not be a flaw intentionally. There's always flaws in research. So I want to be clear here. No study is perfect. No one has the funding to create the perfect study. Um, but it means that there is going to be something that limits the applicability of that to other issues. So on that note, I want to pass it over to Lavita, who is going to talk about the next issue at hand here. Thanks. Tracy, I'll just add a little bit, one little thing there. I think when we're talking also about 
studying these populations, we really have to bear in mind that we might be talking about a subset of the population. There, might, there are children who do have sleeping problems without a doubt. There are children where moms do struggle and dads do struggle and the family system is struggling. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the general population. And sometimes if we don't actually um, highlight that or control for that in some ways, we're not going to get results um, that are valid, as you say. So that's my two cents. I just, I love that because it's true. That is such an important thing to point out because, you know, these studies are trying to look at, although they talk about sleep problems, this is another thing that I'm sure we're going to end up talking about. Mm -hmm. If you read the study, they talk about, oh, we have sleep problems in infants. They don't necessarily have sleep problems. When we look at the definition of a quote unquote sleep problem in an infant, we're talking about biologically normative behaviors. And, you know, there can be cases, as you said, where there are extreme, there are problems, there are things that's topic for another day, but that's not what's happening in so many of these studies. They are taking families who may perceive a problem because they're struggling and that can arise for a variety of reasons. And we're trying to extrapolate this intervention as being something that is going to be positive for everyone and bears no ill effects. And we have to be very clear because it's like assigning medicine to people who aren't sick. Is this, and is it even the right medicine is another question to pop up there, but that's kind of what we're looking at here. And that's why these questions become so important. And to add to that, I guess, in some ways is, when you have these studies that are looking at a certain population um, that do want to or do believe their child has the problem, one then extrapolates and says for parents who don't sleep train or parents who choose to do the alternative, that they're creating a problem. And that is a problem. Yes, 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 thank you. That, yes, because if there's anything we can say, you're not creating a problem. Let us just put that out there right now. You're not. But it's true. We we make people fearful. And then when the studies are only looking at, look at all that. There's no long-term problems. There's no attachment issues. There's no this. We are trying to normalize an intervention that violates the essence of the types of maternal, paternal, parental, partner, grandparent, allocare behaviors that our children expect and need to thrive. Absolutely. So on that note, we have the second issue comes up here and this is, you're going to talk about it, the yes. long-term care or long-term follow-up. <clears throat> yes. Um, so one of the issues here is about the long-term follow-up. So most of the studies that have assessed attachment is looking at one time point, which might be within the first two years, which is very reasonable because we know attachment starts to develop at the six month of age and then sort of fully develops by the end of the second year. However, it's not the end of the attachment system. But we'll talk about that a little later. Um, what I did want to start talking about here was what is attachment? And you know, just a very brief attachment 101 here because that will help contextualize why this is a problem. So firstly, it is a biological bond. What that means is we're all born with it. 
and it helps us survive, essentially. So attachment behaviors are biological. They are directed towards a primary caregiver, which is more often than, than not the mom, but not always. It can be, like I said, dad, granddad, grandma, um, foster mom, adoptive mom, anyone that's emotionally significant to the child. It is a pattern of interaction. So a one-off, I don't pay attention to my child, is not going to damage the attachment bond. It's repeatedly not paying attention to the child can cause different patterns of attachment, right? And it is triggered at separation. So when we look at what attachment really is and the measure that people, the st studies are using, we're really studying it at one time point. And that doesn't mean attachment um, remains stable. It can be influenced by a variety of factors. And so if we're using sleep training, for example, and we're saying there is no effect at time point A, it doesn't automatically mean that the effect won't show up at a later stage, for example, when there are more demands on the attachment system, you know, when our other sibling is born, um, if there was a trauma, if there were, um, you know, other developmental stages which are appropriate. So adolescence, for example, we have no way to know what that impact looks like because, and I think partly it's hard, like you said, Tracy, because those are studies that cannot be funded. They're very long-term. And also it's one measure in a whole set of parenting behaviors. And so to say A causes B is like saying breastfeeding causes um, secure attachment, which we know is not true. Yes, it can be true, uh, but it isn't the only behavior that can cause a secure attachment. So saying that sleep training doesn't cause is literally like saying A causes B or A doesn't cause B. And it's not as simple as that. I think that's really important to remember. And for me, what it kind of goes to is this idea that does sleep training in and of itself cause insecure attachment is really what we're talking about. And I'm sure there are cases where, and we'll get to another factor of that that may be relevant for this, but the other side to that is that, is it more that sleep training changes, as you put it so beautifully in the description of attachment, the patterns of behavior? Because I feel like one of the things that it does is it sets the stage for parents to reduce responsiveness, to become we're teaching parents that their responsiveness to their child is not only not necessary, but the way we push it is that it may be beneficial. Correct. And there is no evidence to tell us that. Yeah. And we're coming back to the same thing here, right? So if we're saying that attachment, we don't have an issue here because look, sleep training is fine. What happens when mom you know, gets pregnant again, and there's another sibling that comes in. And the child's attachment system's activated and therefore results in sometimes aggression and sleep. What happens if the family moves home? What happens if the family um, breaks down for whatever reason? All of which, re you know, all of which we know can impact sleep, right? And then we think that sleep training has not made a difference and we continue to sleep train the child then we're setting up a pattern for misattunement. So what we're really doing is telling the mom, don't attune to your child. And an occasional misattunement is fine, possibly. But in the long term, with other factors, there's a chance that it isn't really fine. And we can't control for all those factors. 
And that makes it hard in the long-term follow-up. And I would say even it sets the stage there maybe with sleep going back to sleep training again, but it may also lead to these disattuned behaviors in other areas too, where your child is upset about starting daycare, starting preschool, something else, and they're crying for that attachment again. And our baseline is, no, I need to separate from you. You need to be more independent. So I'm not going to offer that level of comfort that might be needed to regulate in that time, because that's just the basis. And it's not saying, I don't want to ever suggest that every parent who sleep trains goes down the path with later responsiveness. Absolutely not. But it starts the possibility of that. And I think it just reinforces at some level, the idea that being non-responsive is beneficial in a way and without harm. Is that fair? I think it's being, what it's further saying is being non-responsive is almost essential to facilitate independence and therein where the problem lies. So I'm not saying for one second that mums who've chosen to sleep train their babies are all, you know, they're deemed to a life of, you know, insecure attachments. Not, not at all. Um, because occasionally mums um, know what their infant is capable of, of. They can decipher the infant's cries fairly well. Now, in attachment theory, really, we call that an attunement. Okay, so mom's emotionally sensitive, mom is tuning into the child, and mom is deciphering child's, child's needs. And I'm saying mom, but again, I mean primary caregiver, right? And mom therefore knows that some cries are very much attachment cries, and other cries are not really attachment cries. Now, um, when I say that, both those cries may not require a physical response. But both those cries require a presence. Now that can be a nonverbal presence. It can be a verbal presence. It can be a physical, let me pick you up and soothe you presence. But you have to be sufficiently present to attune to the child to work out what it is that cry is. You cannot sufficiently not cause damage, I think, by ignoring the child. Because you couldn't work out what the cry was if you're systematically saying, I'm not listening to you. That's, I love that because that really is, and, and I like the word present over needing to respond in a particular way because it is true. Sometimes it can be comforted, and especially as our kids get older, by the verbal reassurance. They learn that. Now, I would argue when they're very young, the physical presence is going to be essential when we're talking about three month olds, six month olds, nine month olds. These are one year olds. These are all kids who don't have the cognitive capacity to put things in perspective. And so, and they also struggle to physiologically regulate. So we serve as that co-regulator for them. So even if it's not an attachment cry, if there's distress there in some way, a cry, they're communicating. It's a form of communication. And shutting down our children's communication is, is not a good idea uh, in any time. We want them to talk to us when they're teens and it starts when they're babies. So... That has to happen, but it's also that when we do pick them up, we are physiologically regulating them in a positive way. Absolutely. Um, to add to that, I guess, all cries, for the most part, as an infant, is an attachment cry, okay? Um, it is a bid for comfort. It is a bid for security. It is a bid for 
I'm feeling scared, I'm feeling bored, I'm feeling tired, I'm testing out my attachment system here. If I make a sound, are you going to come? Um, and it starts off very, very early. So if you are going to use a sleep training um, you know, um, methodology to help the child sleep, um, a little bit more. It might make more sense to do it when a language is developed. So, you know, sleep training a four-year-old is very, very different from sleep training a four-month-old because the impact is going to be quite different. Same with daycare separations because separations can trigger uh, the attachment system, both for mom and the child. Hence why the child is protesting. But you can certainly help regulate verbally the child who's four and has the verbal capacity and cognitive capacity to understand versus a two-month-old who doesn't have the capacity to understand, which is why we then want to make sure that the other caregivers are our parents. And this can be a very safe and secure and, you know, trusted daycare. But there's one consistent, responsive, um, and attuned caregiver, or two, even better right and it is so it does come down to the notion of how am i able to offer this child a presence it doesn't have to be a physical intrusive i need to pick you up every time it can also be uh, i'm here darling or a pat or a stroke anything that would give the child the message that i'm here i'm here for you and i've got you and i think it's important to note that your child will respond in kind when they feel that attachment has been met so you know sometimes we talk about certain methods of you know, especially with respect to sleep training where, you know, pat them for a bit and that's just as good, but the child continues to cry, continues to be distressed. They are telling you that has not met my attachment needs. That is not there. And it's up to us to listen to that. And it's okay to try it once. If you walk in and you pat your child and they keep crying, you don't do it for five minutes out of hoping something's going to change. They're just going to get more distressed. You do it. And 10 seconds in, you're going, yeah, that didn't work. So now I'm going to pick you up and here we go. That is right. I mean, that is the form of communication back and forth. Absolutely. And, you know, children will escalate their attachment cries. And so, you know, and, and you'll see this in a very small baby. They will start with rubbing their eyes. They will start with rooting. They will start with, you know, these small attachment cute behaviors. And a mom goes, uh oh, baby needs to be fed. Give the baby here. Thank you very much. Mom knows those signs, right? And then you, and so you don't need to wait till the baby cries. And if the baby has then escalated the cry, what she's saying is, my needs are not met. Get in here, pick me up and co-regulate me. I do not have the cognitive capacity to do it. Thank you very much, right? And so if the child's escalating, it's probably not the best idea to keep patting the mattress. It's not working. And you know it because your instinct will tell you that. And the baby knows it because their cry is telling you that. And this kind of brings us to the next point, I think, which is one of the other flaws in the research that, you know, why we might not see this so much is to do with temperament. And I talk a lot about temperament with people. We get into the orchid, the highly sensitive, the high needs, whatever terminology you want to throw at it. There are children for whom sleep training in particular would be incredibly stressful. And I believe that this is when we said that I think there are some kids where maybe that is a breaking point for them. Um, they may be ones where that is what's happening. There are, however, when we look at dandelions and these other temperaments, we cannot deny that what we see in the research is that they do seem to be more robust to 
negative situations, to certain stressors. It does not bother them as much. And this is something that is hard to acknowledge, I think, when you feel as strongly as we do about sleep training, just because I think every child deserves to have those communication needs met. But I am more than willing to acknowledge that there are likely temperaments out there where depending on other factors in otherwise securely attached behaviors, that it's it's not going to be the end of the world for them. I still don't think it's necessary. I think it's not helping them thrive. But those are me saying what I think. And that is, you know, how we go. And I, But I think it violates our species expectant behaviors. And so when we violate species expectant behaviors, we really should have a good reason for that because we expect it for good reason. But it's true that we do see certain temperaments not really showing much of an effect to certain environmental stressors. And so there's that element. But then on the flip side to that, and Livia, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this with the highly sensitive kids here, is they show an even stronger effect. And their stress is through the roof with some of these things. And when we know that separation in particular for them could activate that attachment system in a way that is so much stronger than we might imagine, the only thing that buffers that and that helps them is that responsiveness that we offer, that social buffering of the stress. So when we think about this group, I mean, what do you think about the idea that there's different, that that we really need to be separating out these kids in the research and trying to identify what's happening? I agree. So just to follow on from your point, Tracy, firstly, not all moms, and I'll reiterate this, not all moms who sleep train are dooming their children, uh, because this is not about shaming moms one way or the other. Sometimes we do what we know best and what we feel right at that point, right? And if your child's responding to it, which means, you know, if you're leaving your child, like I've heard, I've worked with moms that have gone, well, two days of letting them cry for a minute or so, And they never really woke up and we never really had to do it. So I don't know what you're talking about when other moms are saying we're leaving our child cry for 20 minutes. And I'm like, yeah, because your child responded beautifully. It's okay. It wasn't, you know, the child was protesting. Whatever you did in that moment, you were tuned to the child. You knew that you could leave the child for a minute or two. They'd be okay. And the child was. And you're okay. And, you know, for the most part, you're going off living your life. And so that's not what we're talking about here. Then there's a small set of um, children, um, we're both very familiar with those kids, Tracy, where their stress response systems just seem to be so highly strung or so highly activated. So I remember with my now six-year-old walking into a room of people and she would burst out crying. And I'm going, oh my goodness, like we've just walked into a room of people and I just remember thinking, oh, you poor thing. This is really stressful for you, right? And this was in the first two years or something of her life. She is nothing like that at the moment. But I think um, that level of stress response would activate the attachment system that much more. Um, It may or may not make sense to people watching it because it's like, well, mom's um, spoiling the child. Or, you know, the child's like this because mom's giving too much attention or mom's anxious and mom won't let the child explore. But that didn't feel right because I knew that if I had to leave this child, 
she would escalate and she would escalate to a stage that it would take me so much longer to wind her down. Um, I was going to say, I've had the same with my, my daughter, the same. And when she did get going, it was always the only time we ever had to face it really. Cause we did avoid situations that caused it as much. I was attuned to, to say, Oh, this isn't going to work. We're going, but the car and she would get so worked up that she would be vomiting in a very short time. And so if we had to drive anywhere, which we avoided as much as possible, we would have to leave like four times the amount of time. And in order to basically not get to the stage where she might choke on her own vomit, like this is not because sitting in the car seat, you know, that bit reclined, she can't get up because she's strapped down. So it was really stressful, but I saw how her stress reactivity could just go up in a second. It was at zero to a hundred very quickly, zero regulation at all. Absolutely. And to then, you know, and so we was often told, well, you know, put the baby down, drowsy but awake. And I'm like, there is no drowsy but awake. It's awake and more awake and even more awake. And now she's crying and awake. And so if I had to just breastfeed her or hold her or rock her, there wouldn't be, she would go from awake to sleep very quickly. And so, of course, that worked. Um, and so I guess from that perspective, you, you think about attachment theory and, you know, attuning to the child and you go, well, I know what works for my child. I know for the most part that that is what she needs. That's what her stress response system needs to regulate. And I'm offering it. Yeah. And that's exactly. So when we look at temperament here with respect to this, I always want people to remember that the research is not telling us these temperamental differences. And I know this came up actually uh, in episode six about temperament because there was a suggestion that the fearful, difficult temperament that's identified in that group, um, they did, I, they looked at that temperament, this kind of higher fearfulness, um, more anxiety, which has in the past sometimes been linked to this orchid, highly sensitive, et cetera, temperament. And they were the children that they found were had this negative temperament early on they did this this delayed responsiveness whatever that means with respect to night day because this is one of those those cases where again he was i i loved dr giesbeck for being so clear about that just really being clear for everyone at home that that's what was happening and then at 12 months they showed a quote unquote more positive behaviors relative to the control groups. And what this was, was a combination of sleep factors, which we discussed in the episode, we can't even really, it, they were parental report. They're not valid. So we're not going to pretend that maybe they were sleeping better or anything like that. But also they suggested the temperament, the amount of fussiness, et cetera, was also less. And that was something that struck me and something I want to just quickly touch on with you, because as I, I said, and I, I still feel that if we are talking about orchids, say we are talking about this child that has now had this delayed responsiveness, and now they are supposedly not as fussy. But as he acknowledged, we're looking at it at the year point where there is an increase, a natural increase in children in this fussy behavior. And so I don't like thinking of it as fussiness. There's a communication. There's struggles going on in terms of understanding the world. And there's a need to express it to caregivers to get that message across. My hypothesis 
And my question here for you now, I asked him and, and I know his response, but for you, I felt that are we not possibly looking at the fact that because our biologically normative behavior of children at this age is to have a certain level of vocalization, letting it out, let it go, and these children are having less, from a parental perspective, that may seem like an improvement in behavior. But is it? Are we talking about, is this child actually happier? Or are they just not feeling that they can communicate those as well? Um, and they're still communicating it some, but in certain situations, is something blocking them from telling their caregivers that? What do you think? I think one of two things can be happening here, okay? And the more benign explanation first would be children can sometimes outgrow it. So their ability to then tolerate that stress might get better. So what we might then be tapping into is this child's stress response system that has somehow become a little bit more resilient. And when I mean resilience, I mean the ability to bounce back from stressors either on their own or with minimal parental assistance, right? So it could just be that these children are now better just by the wonderful means of development. Right. Um, the other thing could be, and we have a small subset of the population where we would call them avoidant children, wherein they really don't rely on their caregivers for help because they've learned that asking for help is either dismissed in that it's ignored and, you know, I cannot offer this to you or it's rejected. Right. So very quickly, these children organize their attachment towards their parent or primary caregiver as saying, my needs are important, but I cannot rely on you to meet my needs. Therefore, I will sit with my needs and pretend like you don't even care. Pretend like you don't exist and pretend that I don't care about you. But deep inside, I'm sitting there feeling really uncomfortable with my needs, right? And these are children who will look like they're independent. And we have learned as a, as a society to almost value that, but they're not really independent. What they're saying is I cannot depend on people and society and relationships to meet my needs. And therefore I will not express them, right? Now that is a concern. Yeah. And I would say that just to, to be fair to this study is that you know, there was not a relationship to insecure attachment as a global construct. And that's why I think I always want to hesitate. And this is why I want to break it down is that my question, maybe you can elucidate this more, but I just think of Joan Grusick's domain theory, where we are trying to take these small behaviors and apply them globally. And with this, if you're looking at something like sleep training, you have this behavior of sleep training, and then we expect a global attachment, but maybe what happens is the child feels insecure at certain time points. So at night they've learned, okay, I'm going to be quiet. This is the time that my needs don't matter. And yet during the day, okay, I can let it out. We can talk about this. We can go from here. And when we're looking at something to, to go so wide, it's um, as opposed to even just the specifics of the timing and that attachment. So when they say these children then become, you know, less fussy, I guess is the best term for it. Their temperament is improved. 
whatever we want to say about that. Um, are we saying that they are truly improved or is it just that now we're getting this break from the fussy because there's enough periods where they say, you know, okay, at this point, there's some cue that I better be quiet and I'm going to sit, as you put it, sit with my discomfort, but it may not be strong enough. It may not be enough of the time to lead to that overall insecure attachment, but rather that there's patterns and that if we look at this, and this goes back kind of to perhaps one of the methodological flaws that we didn't talk about, but we're studying attachment during the day relative to parenting behaviors at night. And these are potentially quite different. And although attachment as a global construct exists, our responses to something like the strange situation or anything happening during the day might actually look very different at night and during the day because of the particular, I, I don't mean literally domain, but because of these different environments, our response to them differs as well. I agree, Tracy. And I think what we also need to bear in mind here is when we're saying attachment, we're saying it's a pattern, right? So the patterns, we have a predominant pattern. So you can be predominantly securely attached, but you can also have another pattern to go along with it, which is almost a secondary pattern. So it isn't just that if you're securely attached, you're always securely attached. There might be times in life where you will exhibit behaviors that look a little bit like an anxious attachment or a little bit like an avoidant attachment. So um, what, again, coming down to if you're then assessing this child's assess, um, attachment at just time point one, we don't know what this is going to look like later on in life. We don't know, firstly, if the primary attachment or the uh, will change, but we also don't know what a secondary attachment pattern might look like. So there might the child might be predominantly secure, right? But at different times in life could revert to or acquire a different pattern of being, even though it's the primary pattern remains stable. So saying, and I guess that's what the implication is, saying that it doesn't cause attachment difficulties in itself then becomes problematic because attachment is one component of a whole set of parenting behaviors and a whole set of parenting interactions between mom, mom and baby. Yeah, absolutely. That is, so I think that, you know, as we move on here, I mean, this is kind of our, our last main point here as we're getting to it. So is this idea of global versus intrinsic? And I I want to hear you talk again because you explained it so well in one of those little things about how we discovered, like we use the Ainsworth situation. There's other measures. We'll get to that. But um, how it was developed and which group of people it was developed on. Okay. And so, you know, you've heard me talk on the podcast about how attachment is one aspect and it's just one aspect and it's not the whole thing. And how maybe why we don't see attachment and sleep training a very clear link because it's not meant to be in some ways. And I'll explain why I say that, right? When Mary Ainsworth, who I love, by the way, and doesn't get enough credit, um, decided to test attachment, she developed the strain situation procedure, which is this brilliant laboratory procedure where they induce stress in a child to activate the attachment system and how the child calls for the caregiver is recorded, but also how the child 
um, behaves when there's a reunification from the, with the caregiver is also recorded, and that helps to classify. Bobby theorized this. Mary Ainsworth empirically tested this. But before her empirical testing, she actually observed this in Uganda. Now, we know that it's a predominantly co-sleeping population, right? And she was still able to see very distinct, three very distinct um, attachment patterns, which we now know are the secure and your anxious, ambivalent, and um, avoidant attachments. She then subsequently tested these empirically with the strain situation procedure in Baltimore. And she noticed the exact same patterns. So therefore, if co-sleeping can still cause <laughs> or result in different attachment patterns, one must reason that sleep training may also not give us the clear-cut evidence we are looking for. What differentiates, and Mary Ainsworth said this very beautifully, was mom's mutual delight. So the breastfeeding moms, for example, were breastfeeding their baby, as the Ugandan moms, most of them did, right? But the ones that were securely attached, mom delighted in breastfeeding the baby, okay? Um, when we apply that to sleep, if mom doesn't have an issue waking up and going to her child 15 times a night and is actually loving the interaction and wanting to settle baby to sleep or wants to put baby in bed with her and is mutually loving that interaction, you're more likely to have a secure child than mom who's forced to sleep train, override her attuned responses, get frustrated and angry, um, and then, you know, um, force baby to sleep when she's not, she's not feeling safe, baby's not feeling safe, safe, and that's not the recipe for a secure attachment at all, right? And I think similarly with co-sleeping, there are people that feel they should or they do it in reaction to something with the child. And that's something in the co-sleeping literature that pops up a lot is what became hard to disentangle with outcomes was this planned... Uh, enjoyable co-sleeping where people know from the get-go they're going to do it versus what's called reactive bed sharing where people do it in response to a problem and parents are often not very happy with it and there's several reasons why in the reactive group we may see some worse outcomes with children um, one of them maybe whatever caused that reaction in the first place that there's something underlying it so that's obviously number one but number two is this idea that parents, this nighttime engagement, even though it's co-sleeping, even though there's that physical proximity, there's a lack of enjoyment and possibly even frustration, anger, other emotions that come up that our children are primed to pick up from us. Exactly. And when there's a lack of mutual delight, that's a recipe for disaster, really, because, and that can be anything from baby wearing to breastfeeding to co-sleeping to any paternal, any, any behavior where you are not mutually enjoying your child for who they are, it's not going to result in a positive interaction, right? Um, and so if you apply that to sleeping, for example, if you're rocking your baby for 45 minutes and you're frustrated and you know that this is not actually beneficial to the baby and you're both getting worked up simultaneously, you're best putting your baby down and rocking away. You really are because you need to be co-regulated. You need to be regulated within yourself first to help co-regulate your baby, 
right? And so when we look at the sleep training literature, if moms are working themselves up to a stage where it doesn't feel right to them, then don't do it, right? But also if you're feeling like you need to bring your baby in bed as a reaction to how frustrated you are, it's not going to help. And that's when we try to talk about the village and the support and other parents and who else can step in here. And that's a whole other podcast, by the way, but um, <laughs> that's, that's what we're touching on eventually, I think. And I think also with that is it's not just the village too, but also the expectations, because I'm surprised how many people feel they shouldn't enjoy it. So they make themselves not enjoy that proximity, that touch, that, um, the contact with their baby, the the more sleep they might get by doing something like bed sharing. These are things where they have an idea as to how it's supposed to go. And that can lead to these negative feelings. But, you know, I hope parents can separate that out because that is not a true lack of mutual delight. That is a culturally imposed, you shouldn't be enjoying this. Don't go do that. Wag your finger at a mom and tell her and a dad, mom, partner, grandma, whoever, safely can sleep with our baby or respond is doing it wrong. And that is something that we need to overcome so that I think people can find what does bring that mutual delight. If that sounds, does that make sense? That makes absolute sense, Tracy. I think it's really important that moms are allowed to enjoy their baby. Whatever method of feeding they choose, whatever method of sleeping they choose, whatever method of taking, you know, uh, taking the baby around, whatever it is, you should be able to enjoy your baby. Anything that gets in the way is getting in the way of you developing a healthy attachment with your child. Yeah. And going back to the attachment issue here, just to kind of bring this full circle back, when I think about families feeling they need to sleep train, and this is something we've talked about too, but there is often we're telling families there's only one way to deal with this perceived sleep problem. And so that is, I think, why so many people go to it and why we're trying to prove that there is something to it, that it's safe, that you just because it's the only answer we have for families. Let's be honest. When you go to your doctor and your baby's all they tell you is to sleep train. Um, this is not what I hope people can take from this is that although a we've talked about here, the issues with attachment are not as clear cut as people may tell you in the research saying that there is no evidence of attachment issues does not mean there's really no issues of attachment or no evidence, pardon me, of attachment issues. That's not, we can't really conclusively say that. The evidence is truly mixed on that. But more importantly is finding your joy to build that attachment. And, you know, no one likes getting up and walking and feeding their baby um, who's in a different room down the hall 10 times a night. And I think in so many ways, a lot of families would be well served by knowing that that responsiveness is is valuable if you can find joy in it but there's lots of other ways to make it more bearable and it doesn't mean you have to bed share but sometimes it's as simple as having your baby's cot or crib in the same room as you having a sidecar cot or crib that allows you to be even closer without having to get up um if you do have support from other people trying to get that going that is all I mean, other ways, are there other things that you can think of right now, like off the top of your head that? 
I think the in room, the rooming in with the baby, you know, for those who feel really uncomfortable with bed sharing is a very good strategy because it doesn't automatically mean you have to get up and pick up baby. So one would call it intrusive uh, nighttime parenting. It can still be, I'm here, baby, and you can tap baby. You know, the presence, mom's smell is so physiologically calming for baby that you don't really need to have baby in your bed if you don't want to. Um, I can also think of a daytime naps, you know, if moms want to wear their baby and go about doing what they want to do, go ahead, do it. If you're going to mutually enjoy the baby, go ahead, do it. But don't do it because you're told to or you're told that you're going to create a problem or you're trying to avoid a problem that isn't even there. You know, one other thing I want to add that just came to me to add to my number five of the attachment issues that is more raising the risk. So because you brought up at the beginning breastfeeding, right? And so I suddenly hit me. One of the other issues here is that when we sleep train, we are almost inherently cutting off the nighttime breastfeeding. And it is very hard to sleep train and breastfeed on demand. And so this is unique to breastfeeding mothers. It will not, breastfeeding parents. I say mothers, I know it could be any partner. It could be chest feeding, breastfeeding. But um, to anyone who is doing that, that is not possible. Well, I don't know how you make it work if you're sleep training. That is, I'll just be quite honest. Uh, am I missing? I don't know how it works. So no, I don't know how it works. If someone finds the answer, please let me know because I, I would love to hear it too. <laughs> beautiful hormones. You know, you hear parents you know, say, well, well, breastfeeding up until the age of two. Great. Let's do it. Right. Continue to night feed the baby, demand feed, all of that. But no, no, baby should sleep train and baby should sleep solitary. Um, how does that even work? Yeah. Have you tried feeding a baby with all the melatonin that's coming out and staying awake? And that's where we have moms who fall asleep on the recliner, moms who, fall, who are falling asleep on the couch. They physiologically cannot help it. Mm-hmm. And then you're going, well, no, no. Put the baby down while the baby's awake. Well, phys- physiologically, my hormones are not allowing me to do this. And you don't fall asleep. Like, oh, my goodness. No, it doesn't work like that at all now coming back to the bed sharing risks and i think i need to say this though that if you are going to be um using any other method of feeding then you're probably best not bed sharing at least in the infancy because we know it's a risk right but for breastfeeding moms so bed sharing and co-sleeping in the context of bed bed um breastfeeding pardon me is perfectly safe we know it and there's enough evidence unequivocally to say that yeah and and as long as you're looking at safe practices in terms of pillows that's yeah. separate but we can get to that another there's lots of evidence of that if anyone needs anything pop me an email or look up dr james mckenna's notre dame lab they've got a whole list of how to do it safely basis has how to do it safely with helen ball at durham university there's a lot of resources out there that have on that but i was thinking about the attachment because we talk about this attuned responsive feeding as being part of it feeding is something that helps build this attachment and So although it isn't the only, like you said, breastfeeding is not the only thing or really feeding on demand because it's that responsive feeding, whether it's bottle or breath, but you can't do that when you're sleep training for at least part of the day. You're cutting that off, which is another element of that cued care that helps us build our attachment system. So again, I do think more and more, as you've talked about it, for me, I think one of the biggest issues here comes to that secondary attachment pattern that we're not looking at, that we don't have answers on. 
And that is probably the area for for future research there. So that is, so just to sum it up, guys, I, I mean, I think we are running out of time here. So I want to quickly get, there are four, five main reasons why we argue that although the evidence says that there is no negative effect on attachment from sleep training, that we may not be able to really state that as conclusively. And the first of that are these methodological or statistical flaws that we talked about. There are really good reasons that even in the studies that have been done, it's not really telling us that because of how they've measured crying it out, the sample size they've had to even make a difference, the way in which they've done analyses, the way in which, I mean, they've even assessed the strain or uh, attachment. That's something that would briefly touch on is that not all of them use gold standard measures and that can make it even harder. So there's that. The second one is this idea of measuring attachment right now versus the future. That at this moment, it may be fine, but how it sets the stage later for other patterns of behavior and everything that happens is a secondary issue. The third is this issue of temperament. We really are looking at, there may be differences amongst temperament and differences that matter deeply to this attachment debate here. Cause all, you know, a more sensitive child may be much more affected than one who's not. And it may become affected in these different domains. So that's another how it manifests. And then this fourth is this, again, domain global attachment theory versus specific behaviors and how we look at them all um, is there. So that's the fourth is those attachment. And then the fifth, really, I think I almost want to separate out just to be fair here, this idea of sleep may be not the defining feature. And I guess it is a domain of sleep domain versus day domain responsiveness. But, you know, co-sleeping doesn't immediately secure attachment. And so what we're looking at is really how the match works. And that was something Dr. Giesbrecht talked about too, is match is incredibly important. And so when we have a match, it's it facilitates greater responsiveness and therefore greater attachment. And then this fifth one or sixth or whatever number we're at now, I'm not even sure, is... Um, the breastfeeding and or the feeding on demand. I, I don't even want to say just breastfeeding, but this ability to be responsive to feeding cues because feeding is an integral part of an infant's life or a child's life. Um, and particularly, I'm talking infancy here in terms of the sleep training research that has been done. Feeding is very integral and feeding on demand when they're hungry is often very needed. So when we're removing that level, those patterns of responsiveness over time with that, that can also be problematic because it's yet another domain in which our responsiveness is not clear cut. Anyway, that is it for today. And Levita, I cannot thank you enough for coming on to talk about this. I hope this has been helpful for people listening. And I realize it's a little different because it's our thoughts mirroring around and trying to come to a cohesive unit as well, because we ask these questions, we read the research and have to grapple with the fact that here we are two people that really do not advocate sleep training. And we read this research. We've got to have answers for people. So we talk about this. And my hope is that it's helpful for you to listen to as well. So that, you know, sometimes it may be you're given information in a Facebook group or by a friend that tells you, oh, no, 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 it's totally safe. No, they've, they've concluded that. They know that's the case. I think it's fair to say we don't really know it, right? And that's it. It's the curiosity that we don't know. And we're going to continue to stay curious because that's the only way we know and make the best estimates. So why, what I'm hoping is we ask these questions and that will throw up more questions and that will enable us to research together and maybe find an answer. 
Exactly. There we go. So before we go, I did also want to have the opportunity for you to tell people where to find you with your research and everything else, because you are at Monash University, and there may be people that are interested in taking part. So would you be willing to share how they can find you, how they can find out more about you, what research may be going on, and all of that lovely information? Thank you. So if people want to look me up, you can look up the Monash University website. That's monash.edu and you can um, type my name up there and you'll find me. Um, most of my research up until now has been looking really at fathers and how fathers play a role in the transition to fatherhood um, and how they actually make the transition to fatherhood. So, and that's another interest um, area for me. So that's one area. And like you and I talked about, Tracy, we will be starting research on infant sleep. And so stay tuned because we'd like participation. And I will always be sharing it, newsletter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever, website, all the things that I, I have that I don't know how they work, but I will get it shared and that information will be out there. And on here, if we have a call out, I'll make a call on here as well. So Anyway, that is it for today. Thank you so much, Lavita, again, for coming on and having this really, I think, important conversation about the research as it goes. Thank you very much for having me, Tracy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me this week. I hope you found this conversation illuminating, interesting, something. I want to thank Dr. Levita D'Souza for joining me again. It was wonderful to have her on and I hope to have her on again soon to talk about some of these other issues that crop up in the research and that we are grappling with ourselves. Please join me next week as I welcome Dr. Megan Azad and we are going to talk about her research that looks at artificial sweetener use in pregnancy and the effects on our babies. So it should be fascinating. Please join me. And in the meantime, happy parenting.